dear friend, Reverend Shaw, my brothers and sisters of the White Rock Baptist Church, and the city of Philadelphia. I need not pause to say how very delighted I am to be here today and to be some little part of this anniversary occasion. And I certainly want to commend you and congratulate you for the great work that has been done in this church and this community for 63 years. It is not at all a common thing for an institution to survive 63 years, but not only have you stood 63 years, you have stood with purpose and with meaning. May I extend to you my best wishes and hope for you Godspeed as you continue to move on in the days ahead. I want to express my personal appreciation to your pastor, Reverend Shaw, for inviting me to be with you on this significant occasion. And I certainly want to commend him for the leadership that he has given this church and this community. And I know that you will be following him in all of the suggestions and all of the advice given this morning, for this is a day when men and women all over the world are crying out for freedom. And if the Christian preacher does not have this urge and does not stand out in terms of leadership in this area, I'm not so sure he is really fit to lead. This is a basic part of the gospel. Victor Hugo said on one occasion that that is nothing more powerful in all the world than an idea whose time has come. And the idea whose time has come today is the idea of freedom and human dignity. Whatever men are symbols, whether they are in Johannesburg, South Africa, whether they are in Nairobi, Kenya, Lagos, Nigeria, Accra, Ghana, Jackson, Mississippi, Montgomery, Alabama, Atlanta, Georgia, to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, the cry is always the same. We want to be free. This is a great day great time to be alive, and God wants his church to be in the thick of the struggle for freedom. Now, 
on this anniversary occasion I would like to share with you an imaginary letter which comes from the pen of the Apostle Paul. The postmark reveals that it comes from the island of Crete. On opening the letter, I discovered that it was written in ill form, sprawling Greek. At the top of the first page was this inscription. Please read when the Christian people assemble themselves together and pass on to the other churches. For several months now, I have been laboring with the translation. At times, it has been difficult. But now I believe I have deciphered its true meaning. Now if in presenting the letter the content sounds strangely Kenyan instead of Paulinian, attributed to my lack of complete objectivity rather than Paul's lack of clarity. It is miraculous indeed that the Apostle Paul would be writing a letter to you and to me almost 2,000 years after his last letter appeared in the New Testament. How this is possible, I do not know. I do not really care. The important thing is that I can imagine the Apostle Paul writing a letter to American Christians in 1961 A.D. Here is the letter as it stands before me. I, an Apostle of Jesus Christ, by the grace of God, to you who are in America, grace and peace be unto you. Through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. For many years I have longed to be able to come to see you. I have heard so much of you and what you are doing. I have heard of the fascinating and astounding advances that you have made in the scientific realm. I have heard of your dashing subways and your flashing aeroplanes. So you have been able to dwarf distance and place time in change. 
you have been able to carve highways through the stratosphere. And your jet planes have compressed into minutes distances at once to days. That's marvelous, America. And I wondered if your moral progress has kept abreast with your scientific progress. Your Port Thoreau used to talk about improved means to an unimproved end. How often this is true at Points America, I believe you have allowed the means by which you live to outdistance the ends for which you live. You have allowed your mentality to outrun your morality. You have allowed your technology to outdistance your theology. You have allowed your civilization to outrun your culture. And so America, the great danger that faces you today is not so much that atomic bomb which can be placed in an airplane and dropped on the heads of hundreds and millions of people as dangerous as that is. The great danger facing you today is that atomic bomb in the hearts and souls of men capable of exploding into the vileness of hate and into the most damaging selfishness. That's the atomic bomb that you've got to fear today. So America, you must be sure that you keep your moral and spiritual progress abreast with your scientific and technological development. I'm impelled to write you concerning the responsibilities laid upon you to live as Christians in an unchristian world. This is what I had to do. And this is what Christians in all generations have to do. But I understand there are some Christians among you who are seeking to give their ultimate allegiance to man-made systems and customs. They are afraid to be different. They live by some such philosophy as this. Everybody is doing it, so it must be all right. And so at points in your at points in your nation, you have reduced morality to group consensus. You feel that you discover what is right by taking a sort of gallop poll of the majority opinion. Everybody is doing it, so it must be all right. And then you develop a sort of get-by attitude toward right and wrong, a sort of philosophy of the survival of the slickest. You don't care too much about the Ten Commandments, but you urge everybody to obey the Eleventh Commandment, thou shall not get caught. And so according to this ethic, it's all right to lie, but just lie with a bit of finesse. It's all right to exploit, but be a dignified exporter, 
According to this, it is all right to hate, but dress your hate up in the garments of love and make it appear that you are loving when you are actually hating. Just get by. This attitude is ruining your nation. It is ruining the world. So I must say to you Americans, as I said to the Roman Christians, be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. Or as I said to the Philippian Christians, ye are the colony of heaven. Says in substance that although you live in the colony of time, your ultimate allegiance is to the empire of eternity. You have a dual citizenry. You live both in time and eternity, both in heaven and earth. Your ultimate allegiance is not to the state, not to the government, and not to any man-made system. And if any man-made system conflicts with God's will, it is your moral, religious responsibility to stand up against it. For your ultimate allegiance must be to the almighty God. I understand that you have a, an economic system in your nation known as capitalism. Through this economic system, you've been able to do wonders. You've become the richest nation in the world. You have been able to build up the greatest system of production that history has ever known. This is marvelous America. There are some questions that I must raise about your capitalism. That is always the danger that you will misuse your economic system. I still contend that the love of money can be the root of all evil. It can lead one to live a life of gross materialism. And I'm afraid that there are all too many people among you who are more concerned about making a living than making a life. You are prone to judge the success of your professions by the size of the wheelbase on your automobiles and the index of your salary rather than the quality of your service to humanity. You must come to see America. That is something more important in life than the dollar. You must come to see that the love of humanity and the serving of humanity are the important movements of life. Then the misuse of your capitalism can lead to tragic exploitation. This has often happened, for they tell me that one tenth of one percent of the population of your nation controls almost 50 percent of the wealth. How often have you taken necessities from the masses to give luxuries to the classes? Now, America, if you were to be a Christian nation, you must solve this problem. You can't solve it by turn, turning to communism. Well, communism is based on an ethical relativism, a metaphysical materialism, 
and a denial of human freedom which no Christian can accept. You can work within the framework of your democracy to make far better distribution of wealth. You must come to see that God never intended for one group of people to live in superfluous, inordinate wealth while others live in abject, deadening poverty. God wants all of his children to have the basic necessities of life. And he has left enough and to spare in this world for all of his children. You must come to see that, America. And all over the world, men are hungry. And with your wealth, you can do something about this. Hundreds and thousands and millions of men go to bed hungry at night. Maybe you have spent far too much of your money establishing military bases around the world rather than bases of genuine concern and understanding. They tell me you spend more than a million dollars a day in your nation to store surplus food. I tell you where you can store that food free of charge. In the wrinkled stomachs of the millions of people in Asia and Africa and South America who go to bed hungry at night. All I am saying to you, America, is that all life is interrelated. You are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality tied in Whatever affects one directly, it affects all indirectly. You must seek to bridge the gulf between abject, deadening poverty and inordinate, superfluous wealth. Oh, how I would that I could be with you so that I could say to you face to face the things that I'm forced to say in writing. Oh, how I long to share your fellowship. I must rush on to say just a word about the church. I've said on so many occasions, American Christians, that the church is the body of Christ. This means when the church is true to its nature, it knows neither division nor disunity. I must confess that I'm worried about what you are doing to the body of Christ, America. They tell me within Protestantism that there are more than 256 denominations in your nation. That isn't the worst thing. I'm not calling for uniformity. I'm calling for unity. The bad thing is that so many of these denominations are warring against each other with a claim to absolute truth. Oh, how tragic this is. I must say to you, America, that God is not a Baptist. God is not a Methodist. God is not a Presbyterian. God is not an Episcopalian. God is bigger than all of your denominations. You must come to see that, America. You are to be true witnesses for Jesus Christ. And I must also raise some questions, not only about Protestantism, but concerning Roman Catholicism.
This great church stands before the world with its pomp and power, saying that it is the only true church. When its noble pope speaks ex cathedra, he somehow rises to the majestic heights of infallibility. And I must confess, American Christians, that I have some questions to raise about any individual or any institution that claims infallibility in this world. I have some questions to raise about any church that refuses to cooperate with other churches under the pretense that it is the only church. So I must rush on to say that God is not a Roman Catholic. And the boundless sweep of his revelation is not limited to the Vatican. We must see that also, America. That is another thing that disturbs me to no end about the American church. I understand that you have a white church and that you have a Negro church. Somehow segregation has been allowed to creep in the doors of the church. How appalling this is. I understand when you stand at 11 o'clock on Sunday morning to sing in Christ, that is no east or west. You stand in the most segregated hour of Christian America. They tell me that is more integration in sports arenas, in nightclubs, and other secular agencies than that is in the Christian church. I know that those who are in the so-called Negro church are not responsible for this. They had to leave the other church because of segregation. The Negro church is not a segregating church, although it may be segregated. Remind your white brothers every day that integration must be a reality in the church of God. Too often the church has had a high blood pressure to freeze and an anemia of these. This problem must be solved. And I even understand that there are those who try to justify segregation on the basis of the Bible. They argue that the Negro is inferior by nature because of Noah's curse upon the children of Ham. And I understand that at times they use my words to justify slavery and segregation, servants, be obedient to your master. This is blasphemy. I must say once more that in Christ that is neither Jew nor Gentile, born nor free, male nor female, yes, Negro nor white. And we are all one in Christ Jesus. As I said on Mars Hill, out of one blood God made all men to dwell upon the face of the earth. So I urge you American Christians to work passionately and unrelentingly to get rid of this something called segregation. For it is against Christianity, it is against democracy, it is against everything that your religion stands for. That is a need for an Amos in your nation. Rise up once more and cry out with words that echo across the centuries. 
Let justice run down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. That is need for an Abraham Lincoln to see once more that your nation cannot exist half slave and half free. That is need for men all over your nation to live up to your own declaration of independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. They are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And so go on and get rid of this problem, America. I must say just a word to those of you who must struggle to get rid of it. Always struggle with discipline and dignity. Now there will be those Always struggle with discipline and dignity. Now there will be those who will tell you that you need to slow up. They will tell you to cool off. Your only answer can be that you cool off too long and if you don't stop cooling off, you'll end up in a deep freeze. You must make it palpably clear that you cannot cool off in your determination to gain and to exercise your constitutional rights. You must say to them, when students in your nation sit down at lunch counters, protest against injustice, they are in reality standing up for the best in the American dream and carrying the whole nation back to those great wells of democracy which were dug deep by the founding fathers in the formulation of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. So work hard to get rid of segregation. Work at every moment to get rid of it. And I must say to you, although you must work with determination to achieve first-class citizenship, you must never use second-class methods to gain it. Don't allow yourself to stoop down to the low levels of hate. You need not become bitter in the process. You can stand up against an unjust system. You can use creative methods to arouse a sense of shame within the opponent, but you need not hate him. If you succumb to the temptation of using hatred and violence in your struggle, unborn generations will be the recipients of a long and desolate night of bitterness. And your chief legacy to the future will be an endless reign of meaningless chaos. You must over and over again hear Jesus say, Love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Pray for them that despitefully use you. Now I must be honest with you. You struggle for what is right. You're going to have to be prepared to suffer. You're going to have to be prepared to sacrifice. Honesty impels me to admit that this will happen. I must say to you, America... And if you stand up in this call, 
There will be moments when you will face agony and frustration. Whenever you stand up for truth and whenever you stand up for righteousness and whenever you stand up for that which is right, you must be prepared to suffer and sacrifice for righteousness' sake. Yes, as you stand up in this cause, somebody may have to get scarred up. You stand up in this cause, some may have to go to jail. But if this is the case, you must be prepared to fill up the jails if necessary. Some may even have to face physical death. Physical death is the price that some must pay to free their children from a permanent life of psychological death, then nothing could be more Christian. Don't worry about suffering, America. Don't worry about persecution. If you stand up, you'll be called bad names. You'll be misunderstood. Sometimes you may even be called a red or a communist because you believe in the brotherhood of man. You may be dismissed as a dangerous rabble-rouser and a dangerous agitator, but don't worry about that. Don't worry about persecution. I know about it, America. My life was a continual round of persecution. But after my conversion, I was denied by the disciples at Jerusalem. Later, I was tried for heresy at Jerusalem. Then I was jailed at Philippi. Later on, I was beaten at Thessalonica. Then I was mobbed at Ephesus. And I was depressed at Athens. But I'm still gone, America, and I left all of these experiences more convinced than ever before. Somehow nothing in all the world, neither life nor death, angels nor principalities, things present nor things to come, can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Don't worry about persecution, America. You sing a little song, says something about darker yet may be the night. Right may often yield to might, but if you are right, God will fight your battle. That is another song you sing, America. I've seen the lightning flash. I've heard the thunder roll. I've felt sin breakers dashing, trying to conquer my soul. But I heard the voice of Jesus saying still to fight on. He promised never to leave me, never to leave me alone. No, never alone. No, never alone. This is it, America. The end of life is not to be happy. The end of life is not to avoid pain and to achieve pleasure. The end of life is to do the will of God, come what may. This is it. I must bring my writing to a close now. Timothy awaits me to deliver this letter. And I must take leave for another church. Before closing, I want to say a final thing to you. That I said to the church of Corinth, I'm still convinced that love is the most durable power in all the world. 
Over the centuries, men have tried to discover the highest good. This has been one of the chief quests of ethical philosophy. It was one of the big questions of Greek philosophy. Plato sought to answer it, Aristotle sought to answer it, the Epicureans and the Stoics sought to answer it. What is the summon bonum of life? What is the highest good? I think I've discovered the answer to America. I am convinced that love is the highest good. And so John is right. God is love. He who loves somehow has a knowledge of God, but he who hates does not know God. And so I say to you, American Christians, Go out and master all of the intricacies of the English language. Rise to the heights of articulate and eloquent speech. But even if you can speak with the tongues of men and angels and have not love, you are become as sounding brass or the tinkling cymbal. Somehow you may understand all mysteries. You may have the gift of prophecy. You may be able to break into the storehouse of nature and bring out many insights that men never knew were there. You may have all knowledge. Somehow you may ascend to the heights of academic achievement. You may be able to boast of your great institutions of learning. You may be able to boast of all of your MAs and your ABs and your BDs and your PhDs, but if you have not love, it means absolutely nothing. Then you may give your goods to feed the poor. You may rise to the heights of philanthropy. You may be a charitable nation. You may go down in your pockets and give big money for charitable institutions. But if you have not love, it means absolutely nothing. And then you may give your body to be burned. Yes, you may die the death of a martyr. Your spilled blood may become a symbol of honor for generations yet unborn. But if you have not love, your blood was spilt in vain. But you must come to see America. You can be self-centered in your self-sacrifice and self-righteous in your self-denial. You may be generous in order to feed your ego. You may be pious in order to feed your pride. And so without love, benevolence becomes egotism and martyrdom becomes spiritual pride. Love is the greatest of all virtues. And this is the meaning of the cross, America. That drama out on Calvary's Hill, not just some meaningless drama taking place on the stage of history, but it is a telescope through which we look out into the long vista of eternity and see the love of God breaking forth into time. It is an eternal reminder to every generation that love is the only absolute and the love is the most powerful force in all the world. That is a little story that comes from your tradition 
which demonstrates this, the meaning of the cross. Story goes that there was a young man who had developed his talent to a brilliant extent. So he became a most promising musician. His father died at a very early age. His mother worked and worked to send him through school. Then when he finished the Conservatory of Music, he was desirous of studying in Paris, France. And so his mother worked with him, struggled with him, make it possible for him to go abroad. Then the day came when he went abroad and started studying in a great university in its music department to bring the finishing touches for the noble career. Then he got in that far country and got in the wrong crowd. Started wasting his talent and wasting his time and wasting his energy. And so night after night, instead of practicing music, he was going from bar to bar. He got so far in the extreme drink that he became ashamed to write his mother. He was ashamed to face her. He was ashamed to let her know that he was wasting all that he had gone to develop. Then this mother back home got disturbed. She started worrying about her son. Month after month passed and she didn't hear from him. She started saving her little pennies and her dimes and her dollars. Then came that day when she saved enough money to take a journey to Paris. Then she went on that journey and got that and started looking for her son. And she moved from place to place. She couldn't find him. And finally she went into a club and she went up to certain people are asking for him. And the answer was that you just missed him. He was here not long ago, but he's gone now. But if you come back tomorrow night about this time, you will find him here. She went over to the bartender and says, in case I miss him, do you mind if I leave a little note on the table where he usually sits? He said, yes, it's all right. That mother went over there, got to that table, and she reached in a pocketbook and pulled out a little photograph of herself. And she pasted it right there on the side of the table. And then under that picture, she scribbled some words. Come on back home, honey. I still love you. Oh, this is the meaning of the cross. In a sense, the cross is God's photograph planted in the sands of time saying to every generation, come on back home. I still love you. You've been wayward children, but I still love you. I commanded you to love, and yet you hate, but I still love you. You have made a mess of the world, but come on back home. I still love you. This is what God is saying in every generation. Come home, come home. Ye who are weary, come home. This is the voice of God crying in every generation, America. This is the meaning of the cross. 
Oh, I must say goodbye to you now. I hope this letter finds you strong in the faith. Possible now that I will not see you in America, but I will meet you in God's eternity. And now unto him who is able to keep us from falling. And now unto him who is able to solve the race problem. And now unto him who is able to bring about world peace and transform this cosmic energy into constructive force. And now unto him who is able to transform families and able to make homes better, able to make husbands and wives live together better. And now unto him who is able to lift us from the fatigue of despair to the brilliancy of hope. And now unto him who is able to wipe our tears away. And now unto him who is able to lift us from dark and desolate valleys to sunlit paths of joy. And now unto him be power and authority, majesty and dominion, now henceforth and forevermore. This is the letter, and now comes the living of it.